Welcome to Infrastructure for a Better Future, a series where we have honest conversations about the infrastructure challenges we are facing and how we can build a better Aotearoa. In each episode, we talk to experts from here and overseas about what works when it comes to addressing these issues. Okay, well, we're here talking um, about Infrastructure Victoria's latest research titled Choosing Victoria's Future. Um, I'll introduce our guest, uh, the Chief Executive of uh, Infrastructure Victoria, shortly. But first, just a, a brief infra- uh, introduction to this topic and, and why I think I see it as so important to uh, to infrastructure development in New Zealand. Um, population growth is, is certainly one of the biggest drivers of infrastructure services here in New Zealand. Um, and it really boils down to the fact that more people means more housing and jobs. And this generally means more demand to move things around. Uh, whether that's water, electrons, people, goods and services, and uh, and so on. But when we're thinking about, about this growth, it turns out that geographic distribution really matters. Uh, New Zealand expects some two-thirds of its population growth over the next 30 years to occur in just six places, and about half of this is expected to occur in just one city, and that, of course, is Auckland. It uh, turns out that weather, beaches and jobs are a pretty popular, popular mix for New Zealanders. Um, to bring these issues into sort of sharper perspective, New Zealand added 106,000 new Kiwis last year, equivalent to a city roughly the size of Dunedin, and Auckland accounted for about 47,000 of these, a population r- roughly the size of Queenstown or Upper Hutt. Now, growth ambitions are not really extreme by international standards, and certainly Victoria's own growth helps put that in perspective, but they're no less of a challenge to existing institutions and existing residents who often foot the bill. We can sort of think about location decisions in two frames. and The first of these is the choice between cities, which might tell us whether to add new transmission lines or transport capacity uh, in Auckland or Hamilton. But then there's this decision about where to locate within a city. And for infrastructure, this can inform a a really important choice between building new infrastructure on the edge of a city, uh, perhaps, or increasing utilisation and capacity of existing networks uh, in brownfield areas. And that's uh, where I want to sort of segue into the Infrastructure Victoria work. This substantial body of work sketches out five urban form scenarios and makes the case that when it comes to an urban footprint, we have a certain set of choices that we can make. And these choices lead to different social, environmental and economic outcomes. From the dollars in your bank account to the resting heart rate on your watch uh, to the amount that we collectively choose to spend on infrastructure services. This study estimates that when you add up all of these infrastructure costs across local and state government in Australia, developers and users, that the cost of servicing an additional Greenfields house is some $59,000 or uh, in in Kiwi dollars, $64,000 more than a home in a compact uh, city urban form. And in addition, uh, public transport use is 25% higher in more compact cities, time spent in congestion is 70% lower, and emissions are also lower. And this is important not only because, uh, presumably, we want to live in accessible and environmentally friendly places that are easier to get around, but also because of the way we fund infrastructure services, where rates and taxes fund a significant proportion. Uh, In New Zealand, this number is as high as 50%, with the remaining coming from point of use charges. 
As we will find out though, these relationships are not all one way and some infrastructure services don't follow the average pattern and some patterns are far from average. And so with that sort of being said, I'll now bring in Dr. Jonathan Spear, who is the Chief Executive of Infrastructure um, Victoria. He has been with Infrastructure Victoria for the last eight years and has led the organization's work on Victoria's 30-year infrastructure strategy and research program. And um, before joining IVIC, he was with the Victorian Government uh, Department of Premier and Cabinet. And he holds a doctor in philosophy I found very interesting, Jonathan, in history, along with degrees in law, arts and public administration. So welcome to the um, to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's, it's great to be with you and, and always good to uh, compare different experiences across the ditch. Yeah, absolutely, and a, a, a thoroughly interesting piece of work, and and it's definitely got the uh, the interest of uh, to Waihang and the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission because we've been thinking about very similar issues. But I, I thought just to start this, if you could kind of talk a little bit about the the context for Victoria and uh, the motivation for this work. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And I think the way you introduced it in terms of its relevance uh, to New Zealand context is, is, is spot on. So in Victoria, we are looking at around uh, a million more people coming to uh, our state every decade for the next three decades. So we're looking to get to a population of around 11 million people by 2056. And at the same time, we're looking at a couple of million more jobs growth as well in Victoria to about five and a half million jobs. And um, so that puts before us, as you were just explaining, some really important choices about where people live and work, because that very much does drive the infrastructure we need, but more importantly, the outcomes that we get from those different urban forms and this what infrastructure we need to achieve and to sustain those different urban forms as population growths. And um, we have in a Victorian context been very much accommodating a lot of our population growth in the greenfield areas of our city. So in those on, on the edges of our cities, um, Melbourne is a very low density but large uh, geographical area and we see our regional cities like Geelong and Ballarat and Bendigo um, also undertaking some growth. They are uh, orders of magnitude smaller than Melbourne but also at a decision point where they need to decide how they're going to grow. So that's the context where as we come out of COVID we know that <clears throat> Melbourne is a very and Victoria generally a really popular place for people to live and while yeah, you might quibble about exactly the amount of population growth we're going to have there's a lot at stake in terms of getting right um, where people live and where they work um, and that's really what we were sending out to try and work out what you know what was the differences between those different outcomes Right, and so one of the striking things here is that you're looking at this across um, the state, obviously, which differs for us. We do a lot of our planning uh, at the territorial authority or local government uh, level, but that, that's enabled you to think about um, distributions of population, not just within cities, but also between some of these um, sort of smaller, smaller cities as well, right? That's right, and it's really relevant because um, the Victorian government uh, has signalled that it's going to update its strategic land use policy from just being focused on Melbourne to being a plan for all of Victoria. And we identified the need to do this work actually a couple of years ago 
because there is often debate about um, whether more people should be located in our regional cities versus Melbourne and whether that was good or bad for the economy and 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 what sort of outcomes we might get and there's a pretty strong kind of flavor and a lot of commentary especially media commentary that um, you can solve the the growth challenges that a large city like melbourne has by sending people to regional cities and we were keen to test out um, how that hypothesis shaped up and did that through this scenario based approach Okay, right. So the, the scenarios, at, you had five scenarios there and at the extremes you had sort of a compact city model and, and at the other extreme a dispersed and, and three kind of um, in between. Are you able to sort of talk to some of the key insights, particularly from, I suppose, from the cost of infrastructure perspective that you were able to draw out between those five scenarios? Yeah, happy to, Jeff. And it's probably worth, before I dive into the depths of the results, talking a bit about why do we do scenarios and how mm. do we use them? Uh, we at Infrastructure Victoria, we often find ourselves using a scenario-based approach to, to explore um, future planning where there's uncertainty as to exactly which, which, which variable was going to come in play, but we know what the variables are. So we want to see what differences do you get? And so the key variables that these scenarios explore is where you locate population? Is it more people in the centre of Melbourne versus the established areas in the middle of Melbourne versus the edges? And is it more or less people in the regions? Mm. And we did that not because we thought we wanted to find the perfect scenario. That's often not the best way to do scenario planning, but rather to get insights about how does each scenario perform and does that give us a sense of the direction of change that we should be seeking to achieve? And so this modelling was you know, quite in-depth um, land use planning modelling, economic modelling, uh, social environmental impacts and transport modelling. And, and if you any of your listeners are interested, it's all available on our website for, for people to dive into. The key insight we get is that the more compact cities perform better. And that doesn't mean that our cities need to be very, very high rise everywhere, but rather in a context like Melbourne and our regional cities where we have um, uh, high rise currently in the middle, one, a lot of one or two bedroom apartments, um, and then things are really pretty flat from there, um, that there is a real opportunity for more medium density development in established areas of our cities and a little bit less reliance on growth in our greenfield areas. And so that is our overall takeaway from doing these different scenarios. And we see things like, um, you know, uh, a much stronger economic outcomes. So around you know, up to $40 billion of better economic productivity uh, that we get from better located businesses. We see, and, and that means individuals have also got more cash in their pockets too as a result of that more uh, high performing economy. We see less land taken up on the edges of our cities as agricultural land. Um, for those of you who are um, cricket fans, um, the MCG might be dear to your hearts, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. And so we can choose to use or not use about 12,000 times the MCG on the edge of Melbourne uh, if we have a less sprawling city. 
Mm. So, so it's outcomes like that, Jeff, um, and it's also the uh, travel times that people have and the emissions that you get uh, f from the different urban forms that are really interesting in addition to the sort of infrastructure you need to support them. Mm. So just just picking up on this, because I was sort of reading the report uh, with a sort of land lens to it as well, and I don't want to be sort of too reductionist here, but as I was sort of looking through the numbers, particularly um, the cost to deliver different infrastructure services, I wonder if there's sort of a case here that, you know, one of the underlying stories really is about the cost of, of urban land, that infrastructure services that don't require much land, and I'm thinking the likes of telecommunication or electricity or, or services that are underground like water, don't seem to vary so much uh, by city form scenarios. But those ones that do use a lot of land um, are much more consequential. So the, the sort of vertical uh, infrastructure, the community facilities and transport are the notable examples in the report where dispersed cities um, need need far more land for transport and compact cities um, conversely need far more uh, room for vertical services, schools and community facilities and so on. And so I sort of wonder if the bottom line, well, one of the bottom lines here uh, is that um, those transport costs to, to service a more dispersed urban footprint are ultimately greater than, than the cost of additional vertical land costs uh, of community services and so on. Um, is that is that sort of something that came through for you guys? Um, very clearly. So um, it, it's very really clear to us that um, you do net, you spend less um, on your infrastructure. If you have more compact urban forms, you're better able to use the infrastructure you've got and incrementally scale it. Um, and it tends to be uh, better utilised and you get better service as well, especially but not exclusively in transport. You can provide much better transport services in a more compact city, um, whereas the more sprawled your population is, the harder it is to deliver good, both public transport services at the scale you need for that dispersed mm. um, population, but also roads as well. Um, and we designed transport and other infrastructure networks that were um, you know, a reasonable assumption about how you might service those different scenarios um, that give a decent level of service without breaking the bank. And um, so the overall costs, you know, there, there's not huge differences between the overall costs, but the, 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 the costs on the margin um, are quite significant. The additional marginal costs for additional homes in greenfield areas where those homes could be in established areas, that's where the real opportunity is. The other thing this right. points to is more compact cities, um, it does cost more to deliver, especially things that are land hungry, as you were saying, Jeff, and things like open space and communities facilities. But our view is not that that's what should be sacrificed because we know that um, well-functioning high amenity cities have good quality urban space with tree canopy cover and good linear connections. So it's a real um, indicator to us that we do need to keep our eye on delivering high quality urban space because that's what people in more compact cities will need. Mm. And high quality doesn't mean necessarily vast uh, ovals and ovals of open space, but it's the utilisation of it we know is important. And people probably won't accept more compact urban forms unless they have that high quality open space available.
Mm. So are there things that we should be doing now to sort of manage the the land that we might need in 20 or 30 years time? <laughs> oh, abs absolutely. Um, and we think it's really important to to make those steps now because otherwise you end up sleepwalking into a future urban form. And so we very deliberately call this report choosing Victoria's future. Because mm. while it might sound a little grandiose, that is actually what's at stake. Uh, you know, very significant, you know, different, you know, quality of, of life and economy and environment, let alone the infrastructure you need. And so we made a number of recommendations to the Victorian government, which I think are probably quite applicable to uh, a New Zealand context as well. Mm. One is in, in doing the strategic land use planning, the new plan for Victoria, we've recommended that it, that, that plan reinforced established area growth. So reinforce more housing choices, more medium density development being available in the established areas of Melbourne, but also our regional cities too. And if people want to live in a greenfield growth area in their diversity, that's fine, but let's not have it being the only choice. Yeah, and okay. a key part of that is to set and maintain urban growth boundaries that are very clear for landowners and developers in the community about where we want to grow and where we want to stop. And then we've also recommended um, clear housing targets for the number and the type and location where, where additional housing will go. Our experience in, in Victoria has been in the absence of those housing targets that are specific. You have a very high level aspiration for the amount of growth in established areas, but everyone thinks someone else is going to do it. Mm -hmm. So that's important. The other side then that we've recommended is that it's very valuable to have um, published long-term plans for each infrastructure sector um, about the infrastructure that is going to be required to meet the aspirations of the strategic land use plan. It's right. very clear to us from this work that you need different forms of infrastructure to achieve different land use outcomes and to maintain them. And if you don't um, line up the infrastructure investment with the land use aspiration, you could be pulling in opposite directions. Yeah, so it sort of speaks to a real coordination challenge there. I, I suppose one of the, the, the um, lines in the report that really struck a struck a tone with me was this idea that when it comes to infrastructure and infrastructure plans, you want to sort of strike this balance between providing enough information that is able to shape and provide sort of directional certainty, um, but not too much so as to sort of unnecessarily lock in projects that you're not 100% sure whether or not it's the right thing to do or, or what the right timing looks like. Um, yeah. You, you know, you sort of you talk a little bit to how Sydney does it, how the UK does it. Are there things in there that you've kind of learnt on, uh, learnt from looking at other jurisdictions? Yeah, we have. And the other one we've looked at is Queensland, southeast okay. Queensland, which is undergoing a lot of growth uh, as well. And so you, you're you're right that it is a it's a balance to be struck. Right, it's not helpful for governments to feel like they're locked into every last little project for the next thirty years. Um, because that, that's not very, doesn't provide sufficient flexibility um, for circumstances changing. And it also means governments feel that they're locked into um, a lack of choice and they're locked into having to do things that aren't necessarily even their policy position. 
but that but not having any direction about the strategy comes at a real cost because it means that communities and local governments and private investors don't know what the plan is and so they can't complement it either so what we see in other jurisdictions is that they often give a sense of well in this corridor at this period of time, we're going to have to need a mass transit connection to service this amount of people. Or in this area, if we have this amount of population growth, we're going to have to upgrade our electricity distribution system or our water system to meet that need. Um, and school planning is a similar one. So what we see in other jurisdictions is the strategic intent and need about roughly what do we need in roughly what time so people know that and then preferably sitting beneath that each portfolio in government has a more detailed plan and options about its needs that it'll have that it can use to inform probably confidential government considerations and budget bids and mm. so that way you can have the, the best of both. You can have your know, high quality planning within government um, and departments, um, but then the community can have and, and investors can have some sense of what's the plan and how we're going to achieve it. Mm. So this quite, this really resonates. It kind of, to me, it, it speaks to um, at the initial stages, uh, forging out options rather than obligations. And then also you've kind of alluded to the concept of triggers there, which is, you know, Absolutely. once we get to certain yeah. levels of demand, then we'll start thinking about CapEx programs and, and whatnot. Um, the, the, the report also sort of um, speaks to this idea of spatial neutrality. Um, when, you, when you're talking about um, subsidies and taxes, you have a recommendation in there to get rid of the first home grant subsidy. And I wonder if you might just kind of talk to this idea of um, spatial neutrality and why that as a policy is something that, um, you know, when it comes to compact city form might not be an ideal outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I want to preface this by saying I'm no expert in what the various um, settings are in New Zealand currently, although I'm aware you've been through a pretty significant planning reform, which we've had a mm. bit of a look at. Well, we, we have something very similar to the first mm. home grant subsidy. In fact, I think the yeah. amount is almost identical. So yeah, it'd be an interesting yeah. one to go into. Yeah. So, so we've looked at this in some detail, as have other organisations like the uh, academic organisations and, and Australia's Productivity Commission. And so these first homeowner grants um, uh, have been around in various forms for a long time and they've had a real um, resurgence during and after COVID as a form of um, economic uh, support um, and priming. What they, in a Victorian context, what they do is they give you, you know, some thousands of dollars towards uh, the, the cost of your home and you really are only entitled to it um, for a home uh, under a certain value and if it's a new build. And funnily enough, the, about the only place you can get that in a Melbourne context is in the Greenfield suburbs. And we have done surveying of people and, and, and focus groups of people who buy in these suburbs who tell us that they one of the things that they try to do in, in, in their choice about where they live is that they try to maximise all the various grants and subsidies they can get. Problem is, it doesn't actually make the homes cheaper. Big problem. So it does make people buy large homes in the greenfield areas and the edge of our cities sooner than they would otherwise, which is actually contrary to government policy 
where they want more people to live in established areas. Mm. Developers already know that people have got this amount of money in their budget, and there's really good evidence that the value of the grant just gets passed through to the cost of the home that developers then pocket. And that's costing on average about $150 million a year in Victoria. Um, and so we th that's an example of a policy that really is running counter to government's policy intention in that it, it's not actually helping first home buyers make homes more affordable, but it is driving more people to the edges of our cities than sooner than they otherwise would. So we recommended abolishing that grant. Um, if if first homeowners really do need assistance, there's another alternative that Victoria and, and Western Australia and some other places have, which is um, a co-investment in the equity value of the home. And that tends to be a more targeted um, slightly, and, and less um, uh, distortionary way of supporting first homeowners. Yeah, okay. And and I think like from from the perspective of the city form as well, that what was interesting to me is the argument that you were making that you know, this was ultimately pushing people into greenfield area. So you had a policy here which on the face of it seemed to be um well intended but was actually probably resulting in higher house prices in areas that had higher a higher burden on public service to um, service the infrastructure costs. It, it does, and and mm. um, I think a key piece is the current strategic land use plan seeks to have uh, only 30% of uh, housing growth in the edges of our city and greenfield areas and 70% now established areas, but it's actually um, a bit more, roughly 50% at least of growth mm. is in the greenfield areas of our, of our cities and it's being driven in part by a lack of housing choice, um, which uh, changes to how the approval processes for new homes to be delivered in established areas works, but it's also being driven by these financial incentives that I've just described. Mm. So so let's sort of pivot now to, to regulation and thinking about those um, established areas, I'm sort of interested in in the headwinds that there might be uh, to, to get a bit more growth in those areas. You, you've recommended um, more use of the residential growth zone, which I understand is about a four story um, height uh, maximum. Um, this, of course, is interesting to us because we've got the medium density residential standards, which put three stories across all of our tier one cities. But what's interesting to me is that you've backed this up also with an emphasis on good design guidelines um, yeah. and an emphasis on on mixed uh, mixed use zoning as well. I think the Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the residential growth zone has quite um, permissible sort of mixed use zoning elements to it as well. It, it does. And so so what's interesting we, when we looked at this is that this this residential growth zone is designed to facilitate um, low to medium rise apartments in good locations that are particularly locations near transport corridors so that they're well serviced there. So this is like ideal opportunity, but less than 1% of uh, Melbourne's area is residential growth zone. And one of the big concerns is around the design standards that are expected, and we don't have clear standards for them in our planning provisions. 
And we've spent a lot of time talking to local communities and other stakeholders about, you know, what is it that they would um, uh, need to be able to accept greater levels of density or, or more compact cities. And the number one thing that comes up is design quality. Mm. And often it's exterior design quality, exterior appearance, although we also talk to families who would like to have great assurance that low rise apartments will be suitable for them to live in. So we, we place great emphasis on um, having clear design standards for uh, both low rise apartments, but also if we're going to facilitate more townhouse development um, in established areas, that's also a key threshold issue for the community. It's also a threshold issue for councils and developers because we have got um, lots of data that shows um, one of the reasons we're not getting much supply of medium density homes that are affordable in our established areas is because everyone goes off to our planning tribunal to have a fight about things, um, often very marginal things. So there's a real opportunity to clarify those planning rules and codes and expectations so they meet community and design good design standards and having done that at a strategic level we don't have to fight house by house street by street on what every little development is going to have we think that's a really important part of of unlocking housing choice of reach of enabling a more compact city which of course our evidence shows gets us much better outcomes yeah, it also sort of speaks to, um, you know, community buy-in as well. Um, yeah. I was sort of reflecting on my own experience where, you know, once you're moving from sort of single dwelling zone to a sort of terraced apartment, you you know, you'll often hear that that comes with noise and crowding effects and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, you can think about places in New York and the West Village that are not much more than four stories that are some of the most attractive uh, places in the world to live as well. And so there's something about sort of selling a story that, you know, these kinds of outcomes actually um, can be, uh, have a lot of upside to them. Absolutely. Look, M Melbourne could be twice as dense as it is now, and it would still be less dense than Paris. Right. Yeah. And I don't know a lot of people who go to Paris and complain about the built form. They complain about lots of other things, mm. um, but not built form. Mm. Mm. Um, okay, uh, one other thing that's in there, minimum car parking requirements, you talk about reducing them. I think uh, we would probably encourage you to go a bit further than that. Um, we have uh, abolished them in our tier one cities. What's what's the thinking on minimum car parking requirements in Victoria? Yeah, we, we had a look at, at this because um, our sense was that there was an over prescription of it. And, and um, when we dived into the research and, and did the economic analysis, we, we, it turns out that our planning provisions do over-prescribe car parking, especially for uh, apartment developments and near good public transport. And so often um, they, they require at least one more car park than is actually really needed as a minimum. So we've, we're not abolishing car park requirements um, because there is a real question about um, street space utilisation and public versus private benefit of, of use of street space for parking. And you have to be pragmatic and realistic about that. But we've, we certainly have recommended that, for example, a lot of one bedroom apartments, you wouldn't need to prescribe two car uh, one, one car park you could have zero um, if they're in well located 
areas near good public transport. And similarly, a lot of two bedroom apartments you could probably only have one uh, or three bedroom apartment, only one. So what we're looking at here is that this affects cost of apartments, of course, for to make them affordable and also affects development feasibility, the real ability of developers to actually deliver um, medium density housing in established areas. Um, so we think that that's a, it's not the be all and end all, but it's one part of unlocking opportunity to have um, more affordable medium density housing and make better use of the infrastructure we've got, particularly if you've got good public transport or active transport connections available. Yeah, no, the housing affordability angle to this was um, was decisive in the in the work that was done in New Zealand. Um, and of course, the, the other angle to this of, is that your developers can always do more. Um, Absolutely. Right. This doesn't need to be a regulatory thing. Um, the market, if it wants more car parking and housing, will of course deliver, will deliver it. That's right. Um, yeah. I know that Infrastructure Victoria in the past has had a lot to say about congestion charging. There wasn't a ton of that in here. How are you sort of thinking about road pricing, congestion charging generally as part of the choices for urban form? Yeah. So. Um, we are on a bit of a um, an unclear path in the whole of Australia currently regarding um, various forms of road user charging because the Australian High Court has just determined that the Victorian government's uh, distance-based charge on zero emission vehicles is something that it's constitutionally unable to do, which was a surprise to, to many people, uh, myself included. Um, hmm. So that's um, that's something that's up for uh, consideration, particularly the ball was in the Commonwealth Government Court at the moment about what it's going to do uh, with uh, charging for use of the roads by zero emission vehicles. Overall, you know, in the what we see is um, in the absence with the uptake of more zero emission vehicles and the, the absence of any price signal uh, about their use, um, we do see more congestion in future under all the modelling we've done over many years uh, because zero emission vehicles are great. Um, they're cheaper to run. They're still cars. And so modal choice, the hierarchy of what mode we should be promoting and encouraging as a city becomes bigger and more dense, it's very clear that you know further investment in uh, public and active transport is really important. The other thing our work really calls out is the role that pricing um, plays across the transport network. So to, when, when someone decides to travel, it's the price of public transport as well that makes a difference. And so we've called on um, there to be differential pricing for different modes and different types of public transport too, because we see very big uplift of, of buses, for example, if you if you have buses cheaper um, or um, off-peak travel when that's cheaper as well. So we think about very much think about road user charging in a, in a greater context of transport network pricing and how do you need to optimise a transport system overall rather than the single mode. Yeah, so I mean that sort of raises an interesting question which is how much can you sort of let cities um, get on with thinking about good transport pricing as in like time of day um, congestion charging and how much do you need to sort of step back and sort of slow the, the horse down and say no 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 we need to get this right at a network level which might actually bring in other jurisdictions 
um, other cities, there might be other sort of coordination things you need to think about in there. Yeah, well, uh, and that's where, of course, road, all the various forms of road user charging are quite complex because um, the, uh, in addition to Australia's particular constitutional challenges around that, um, we also have, you know, vehicles do cross borders and the congestion problems in the middle of Melbourne are different to um, the, the need to um, pay for roads that heavy vehicles use on our freeways. And so thinking about the overall system across jurisdictions for, for road user charging is really important. Probably a bit of a different story when it comes to public transport, which tends to be much more locally um, uh, owned and operated uh, and under the control of uh, state and city governments. And that's certainly where they've got big opportunities to um, tweak their service levels, uh, their infrastructure investment and their prices to get the, the optimal outcome. And that's something that our transport modelling we've done for, for this work um, and all previously really demonstrates clearly. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, one sort of final question to, to leave on. I mean, again, just to reiterate, you know, how valuable I think this piece of work is. Um, having gone through um, putting this together, you know, when you're thinking about how other cities work, how relevant do you think your results are or how much do you think that they would change or vary to other cities um, versus actually like you've found something that here that might be generalizable across many cities? Great, great question, Jeff. So when we set out to do this work, we had a very open mind as to what the outcomes would be. And we set up each of the scenarios so that they could perform as well as they possibly could. Um, and so we didn't, if you like, stack the deck against a more sprawled versus a more compact scenario. But what we saw, of course, is the more compact scenarios do better. That's actually really not surprising. You look at studies around the world, which use all sorts of different methodologies, and they come to quite similar conclusions that more compact cities um, perform better in terms of outcomes and also tend to make better use of the infrastructure they have. So we think it's highly relevant for other jurisdictions in Australia and New Zealand and is quite consistent with findings around the world. Great stuff. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Spear, really appreciate your, your time and walking us through the study. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Find out more about the work Te Waihanga is doing to transform infrastructure in Aotearoa at tewaihanga.govt.nz.